Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now... We have Magdalena Edwards to talk about Clarice Lispector's The Chandelier, which we're very excited about. Uh, Magdalena is a writer, translator, and actor based in L.A. She holds a Ph.D. in comparative literature from UCLA and a B.A. in social studies from Harvard. Born in Santiago, Chile, she and raised in Chicago, L.A., and D.C. And um, Christiana Soto Vanderplas of LARB says, Chandelier is not a book to be read at a fast pace, but rather one to be slowly sipped and savored a few pages at a time, one that forces us to find other modes of reading, of approaching literature, committed to finding the pleasures of the text. Here she is. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here today to talk about Clady C. Lispector and her second novel, The Chandelier. Um, this morning, I actually was on a Skype call for about two hours with the bilingual Brazilian book club based in London at the um, Brazilian embassy there, and it was fascinating because these are very intense, voracious readers of literature, Brazilian literature, and I learned a lot of new things about Clady C. That's one of the things I've loved about working on her writing is that she never ceases to surprise um, and she always has something up her sleeve. It's like she doesn't want to be pinned down. Um, she's so playful that way. I wanted to say a few things about the book um, and about her work. Uh, how many of you are familiar with her work? Okay, fantastic. Um, so um, as many of you know, she was born in the Ukraine to a Jewish family who had to flee um, because of uh, pogroms and so um, they ended up in Brazil. Um, they might have moved to the United States because they also had relatives there and I've always found it fascinating that uh, Lispector might have ended up being an English language writer. But that's not what happened. Her family went to Brazil and that's where she grew up um, and learned Portuguese and became essentially uh, a Brazilian. Um, this is her second novel that she started writing in 1943. She was a newlywed. He, she had just finished law school. She married one of her law school classmates who was a diplomat. And in fact, in order to marry him, um, she, had, she wrote a letter to the president of Brazil at the time to ask him to expedite her citizenship because diplomats could not be married to non-citizens. Um, and it's a very interesting letter where she talks about being this Russian girl but who doesn't speak the language and if she got sent back to Russia would not be able to exist there because um, that's not her place. And so that idea of somebody with a hybridity in terms of identity and culture, background, someone who's an immigrant um, is present throughout her writing and I think makes her writing especially uh, urgent in a way today. Um, what else can I tell you? This is her second book, and her first novel, Near to the Wild Heart, um, was published to great acclaim. 
people began to compare her to Virginia Woolf and Franz Kafka and Proust and, and many other great world writers. Um, that novel was actually published after she finished writing this one. So for my friends who are novelists who talk about the second novel problem, where you've published your first novel, it does well, and then you get nervous and think, how can I write the next one? What if nothing comes? What if it's terrible? She kind of skirted that issue by just pouring out her, her second novel um, before the first one even hit the presses. And I, I think that's very interesting as well. Because if you compare the two books, um, they're quite different, and yet they're also very linked. Both protagonists, the chandelier's protagonist's name is Virginia. The protagonist of Near to the Wild Heart is a young woman named Joanna who's emerging into the world and trying to uh, find her future. Um, both of those protagonists are, are growing up and becoming um, women in the world and trying to find their way, and yet the novels are very different because uh, while Near to the Wild Heart has chapters with titles and, and kind of scenes that are almost, you know, uh, could be out of a play, um, and even moments where the main character speaks in uh, the first person, the chandelier doesn't even really have section breaks. So you have kind of um, pages upon pages of text, almost like this dense forest of a uh, quiet farm where Virginia grows up. So I'm going to read a few um, sections of the book for you. Um, and I wanted to start actually with the first paragraph in Portuguese, just to give you a sensation of the language um, and the rhythms and the musicality. When I uh, was working on the translation, I felt that there were sort of two parallel modes of translation. One was uh, thinking about the language itself and its meaning, and of course the story and getting the verbs right and all of that, and at the same time the rhythms, the music, the tension, all of those things. And uh, the specter for her music was incredibly important, and she actually wrote while listening to classical music, um, which I find incredibly interesting. Uh, as, as someone who generally writes just with, with the quiet or the noise in my head. So here's the, the, <laughs> the opening paragraph of O Lustri, that's the title in Portuguese, and the novel is dedicated to her sister, uh, a minha irmã Tânia. Ela seria fluida durante toda a vida, porém o que dominara seus contornos e os atraíra um centro, o que a iluminara contra o mundo, e lhe dera íntimo poder fora ao segredo. Nunca saberia pensar nele em termos claros, temendo invadir e dissolver a sua imagem. No entanto, ele formara no seu interior um núcleo longuínquo e vivo e jamais perdera a mágia. Sustentava-a na sua vaguidão insolúvel como a única realidade que para ela sempre deveria ser a perdida. Os dois se despruçavam sobre o ponte frágil e Virginia sentia os pés nos vacilaram de insegurança, como se estivessem soltos sobre o redemônio calmo das águas. There's a lot of water imagery from the very beginning, um, which um, you'll hear now. Um, she'd be flowing all her life. But what had dominated her edges and attracted them toward a center, what had illuminated her against the world and given her intimate power was the secret. She'd never know how to think of it in clear terms, afraid to invade and dissolve its image. Yet it had formed in her interior a far-off and living nucleus and had never lost the magic. It sustained her in her unsolvable vagueness like the single reality that for her should always be the lost one. 
The two of them were leaning over the fragile bridge, and Virginia was feeling her bare feet falter insecurely as if they were dangling atop the calm whirl of the waters. It was a violent and dry day, in broad fixed colors. The trees were creaking beneath the warm wind wrinkled by swift cool drafts. The thin and torn girlish dress was pierced by shivers of coolness. With her serious mouth pressed against the dead branch of the bridge, Virginia was plunging her distracted eyes into the waters. Suddenly she'd frozen tense and light. Look. Daniel, who's her brother, had turned his head quickly. Stuck on a rock was a wet hat, heavy and dark with water. The running river was tugging it with brutality, and it was putting up a fight. Until losing its final strength, it was taken by the light current, and in leaps disappeared into the foam, almost happy. They hesitated, surprised. We can't tell anyone, whispered Virginia finally, her voice distant and dizzy. Yes, even Daniel had been frightened and was agreeing. The waters kept flowing. Not even if they ask us about the drought. Yes, Virginia almost shouted. Both fell silent with strength, their eyes bulging and ferocious. Virginia, her brother said slowly, with a rawness that left his face all angles, I will swear. Yes, my God, but one always swears. Daniel was thinking while looking at her, and she wasn't moving her face, waiting for him to find in her the answer. For example, that everything that we are turns to nothing if we speak of this to anyone. So the novel opens with Virginia and her brother Daniel in the forest. They see something, um, they think, They've seen a man drowning, and it's this secret that they decide not to tell anybody about. And as you read, you'll see that surely this is not the only secret between these two siblings. Um, there are a lot of things kind of brewing in their relationship. They're the younger two of three kids. Their older sister, Esmeralda, is um, of courting age. She's going to these dances, and her mother goes with her, and she's very taken up by that, and the, the mother is very sort of occupied with that. So these other two siblings are kind of left to their own devices. They create together um, a pact that they call the Society of Shadows. And I want to read to you guys a little section where the two of them are talking about this Society of Shadows and what it entails. Had it been because of the drowned man that the Society of Shadows was born, they had foreseen the charmed and dangerous beginning of the unknown, the momentum that came from fear. Daniel said to her, let us create the Society of Shadows. Even before learning what it was about, Virginia had already confusedly understood with her body and consented. The Society of Shadows had strange and undefined objectives. They themselves did not know them, and it mixed its commands with an almost desperate ignorance. The Society of Shadows must explore the forest. Yes, yes, but why? Near the mansion, there was an almost closed path, and along it you could reach the darkness. Yes, the darkness, but why? Because solitude. Solitude is the motto of the society, Daniel ordered. What? Virginia was having trouble understanding. Everything that frightens because it leaves us alone is what we must seek. He was hesitating. He would hover for an instant, drifting, his thinking intersecting with hers like the bow over the violin string, light sparks of insight and surprise and making themselves in the air. Days would go by without a single word being added about the society, without either daring to touch that living, shapeless matter. But they hadn't forgotten. They had to be quiet in order to create a pause in the dread that was already dominating them, and in that happiness that would make Virginia shake, her eyes undemonstrative. The Society of Shadows was bringing her so close to Daniel, he would allow her to be with him every day. Even she loved secrets with ferocity as if they were of her own kind. And truth, she was asking? What truth? Another motto should be truth. 
Yes, Daniel would get annoyed. It was so hard for him to be directed even a single time by Virginia. So they have this kind of conflictive relationship. He's the older brother. He bosses her around. He sends her on these missions through the Society of Shadows um, to do these terrible things, like he has a box of spiders that he collects, and he says to her, Virginia, your next mission for the Society of Shadows is to stick your eye in the hole of the box, it's like a shoebox, and stare at the spiders, you know, and count to a thousand or something like that. And she does that, but something happens with one of the spiders. She gets some, like, poison in her eye, and then her eye gets swollen, and it's this whole kind of um, process. Her body is really affected by it, and then for the rest of the novel, her eye is never quite the same. Um, and when the spiders die, because they're in this box and it's left in a hiding place, but then it rains and it gets soggy and they die, he barks at her and says, you know, you have to go throw that box away. He won't touch them. It's like, you. it reminds me of when I was a kid, you know, and you'd have someone trying to tell you what to do, but maybe they were actually scared of the spiders more than you were. And you kind of had to be uh, uh, the brave one and the lackey at the same time. So she goes through these things, but she also has a very private and personal relationship to the Society of Shadows and to everything else in the novel. So it's very interesting to get these moments where she's interacting with someone like Daniel or as she, when she gets older and the, she and her brother actually move to the city um, and there's a very long uh, scene at a dinner party so she's engaging with like other women her age. She can be very awkward and very um, uh, almost distanced from the people she's trying to talk to, but then she'll have a private connection to the moment and it can be incredibly intense. So I just wanted to read a, a little paragraph about her talking about the Society of Shadows from her perspective. She was looking <coughs> a little water. She was looking at herself in the mirror her white and delicate face lost in the half-light, her eyes open, her lips without expression. She was enjoying herself, liking that sleek, so sinuous way about her, her shaded hair, her small and skinny shoulders. How lovely I am, she said. Who will buy me? Who will buy me? She'd give a quick smooch to the mirror. Who will buy me? Agile, funny, funny as if I were blonde, but I'm not blonde. I have lovely, cold, extraordinary brown hair. But I want someone to buy me so much that, that, that I'll kill myself, she exclaimed, and peering at her face, frightened by the phrase, proud of her own ardor. She laughed a fake guffaw, low and shining. Yes, yes, she'd need a secret life in order to be able to exist. From one instant to the next, she was once again serious and tired. Her heart was beating in the shadow, slow and red. A new element, foreign until now, had penetrated in her body since the Society of Shadows had come to exist. Now she was learning that she was good, but that her goodness would not impede her badness. This feeling was almost old. It had been discovered days ago, and a new desire was touching her heart to free herself still more, to go beyond the limits of her life. It was a phrase without words that was rolling around her body like nothing more than a push. To go beyond the limits of my life. She didn't know what she was saying, looking at herself in the mirror in the guest room. I could kill them all, she was thinking with a smile and a new freedom, staring childishly at her image. She was waiting for an instant watchful, but no, nothing had been created inside herself with the feeling provoked, neither joy nor fear. And where had the idea been born to her? I haven't even finished the paragraph. I just wanted to let you know I'm going to stop there. But that's, that paragraph begins at the top 
of one page and I went all the way to the bottom. And there's, there is more, but I'm going to move on. Um, give you something to look forward to when you read, when you read the book yourself. Um, there's a section um, at this party when she leaves the party. Um, and she has this boyfriend, boyfriend named Vicenci. So they leave this dinner party, but she actually leaves with him and this other friend, Adriano. So they're both, both guys and Virginia are in a taxi cab all together. And then this, this strange thing happens where, and this is not the only time in the book, I wanted to give you a sense of this, where it's a scene that's happening and then it seems to blur into I don't know, is it fantasy, is it dream, is it both, is it memory? And Lispector is really playing there with um, our perception of reality and how thoughts flow and how perception flows and how memory works. Um, and I think it's also a very interesting section because the book, she wrote it between 1943 and 44, and it was published in 1946. It took her two years to get a publisher, even though her first book was a pretty good hit. Um, the original publisher of that book wouldn't take it. So, But what I'm trying to say is that this book came out a fair amount of time ago, and yet the blurriness and the confusion and what's really happening with these two men in this taxi cab, to me, resonates with a lot of the conversations we're having culturally right now about people and relationships and consent and bodies and who, who remembers what or who experienced what. <clears throat> the car was gliding smoothly. That's the taxi. In the tepid interior, the motor, <clears throat> the motor was breathing like a heart. The motor was breathing like a heart. With extreme comfort and yearning, she shrank between Vicenci and Adriano. With eyes shining and hard from whiskey, they had all been drinking a lot at the party, um, they were talking while coming closer to Virginia, feeling the heat of her body, staring eyes dissimulating brief words. Amid her sleepiness, she felt a bit unhappy and abandoned, heavy eyelids, lips numb and cynical. In a fluctuating and fleeting crisis, she wanted to be protected, for someone to defend her, consider her excessively pure to be touched like that, airing and stirring her. Between the two men, comfort was deepening her. From the street, sounds of solitary horns were coming, her pupils dampened with sleep, she was peering at the shadow. Without realizing it, she dozed a little, clutching with vigor in her lap, the wide hat that was swimming white atop the half-light. She had been wearing a hat at the party. Seeing as in a dream the lights blinking in the empty city, the trip was so fast that soon she was undoing the sheets from the bed, opening her lips, saying a name full of softness and darkness, Vicenci. The flowers were shuddering, vivid in the darkness, as if she were dissolving and plunging into her own dissolved matter, and in the milky and translucent darkness she herself was gliding as a pure fish, swinging her serenely resplendent tail. Yes, Vicenci. She was moving ahead without fear and without hurry, her big limpid eyes closed through herself while the man was moving away with another man inside a taxi through the city, accompanied by the way that she was missing both of them, squeezing her and insulting her, leaning on her in the back of the car. The neighbors 
clock suddenly moved, struck three transparent notes on three levels of sound, the first high and scared, almost solidifying her in the beginning of a vigil, the second containing itself between the first and the one to come, the last, lower, pacifying, pacifying, each separated from the next, and brilliant, like diamonds separated from one another and brilliant. But the three notes were liquid, and diamonds would never fear breaking in a single confusion. She went on undone in a great thick sea, and crossing it filled with a calm that was made of satisfaction, of the feeling in the deep car, of hope, of memory scattering. With the beating of eyelids, she was changing the level of her inner existence. Um. <laughs> and as you can see, the body is very important in the book. Um, throughout Le Spectre's work, you will often get uh, uh, these um, doctor figures and these um, encounters between main characters and the world of medicine, which I think is, is a really interesting theme in, in her work um, in general. And there's a scene with a doctor in uh, the chandelier that I think is incredibly um, interesting. There, there have been some great reviews of this book, that, that, which has been really thrilling. And um, one of the reviews that came out in the New York Times talks about how this novel is kind of like a seed for all of her other work, since it's her second novel and it's so it's kind of dense and very lyrical and very layered. Um, the idea in this review is that you know you, you kind of get everything in there that she would then unfurl in her later novels and stories. And I think there's a lot. Uh, to that, um, and so I think this is a doctor that we see in, in other texts of Lispector's later. The next day, yet it had been at that time, she visited the young doctor. He was laughing, imitating her. With a falsely paternal demeanor, he would brush his body against hers, brush against her cheek, that face with two days of beard growth, while on the other cheek he was giving her little slaps. While she, surprised and confused, was feeling almost good, very good. He was tall and pale, and women were worthless to him. He had a wedding ring. How could you ever guess his relations with his wife? He was getting closer in that calm, white office, and she was still sitting on the table where he'd examined her quickly. He'd had two nights of childbirth in a row, he'd said at the beginning with tact and ceremony. Hadn't even been able to shave. He was saying as she was taking off her hat while carefully storing the hairpins. And after he examined her, they sat talking. He was losing his coldness, joking so intimately, so distantly, in the white clean office, seeing her as just anyone, desiring her without sadness, not even waiting for her to let him try something, just wanting to make himself desired, cheerful, mischievous, and distracted, having fun with his own virility, yet serious, his eyes watchful and mobile. And so um, the other thing I want to say about this scene is that the novel is filled with like inappropriate and awkward moments. And is, as you can see in this one, Virginia is an agent. She's not completely passive. She's thinking, what are his relations like with his wife? You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room who's ever had that kind of not, not the right thought when you're in the middle of getting introduced to someone or something at a dinner party. Um, and so there, there's a kind of um, frankness and honesty to the book that, that I think is, um, was very appealing as I was working on it and I, and I hope is appealing to readers. Um, the Spectre is also a great writer of dialogue. Um, and uh, I want to give you a little scene that's mostly dialogue between Virginia and her boyfriend, Vicente. 
They're hanging out together at his place. He gave a frank and happy guffaw, and while laughing was looking at her, attentive, surprised. Keep going, baby. She was gaining confidence, like a dog grooming itself. She closed her radiant eyes, went on with her blushing hot face. The body from back then died beneath the windows that were opening, opening onto the pink, Vicente. She herself was laughing. Should she stop, she was wondering, because she'd end up saying something excessive, good morning so-and-so, ruining even the past. But he was laughing extremely amused, and she couldn't help it. So fascinating it was to feel herself loved. He was laughing without embarrassment, getting uglier, his face open, suddenly like brother and sister, like from the same family, like people who expect nothing from each other, my God. If she'd only known that to win him over, she had to close her eyes and speak, if she'd only known. It was with a bit of sadness and eyes sparkling with laughter that she went on. Darling, darling, little green flower in the white guitar. Boy, boy, little green flower in the moonlight, in the moonlight, in the moonlight. No, Vicente was saying, excited and speaking seriously. What you should do to get it right is not think, exactly not think, he smiled. You're a little like the improvisers of serenades, you know. He was suddenly looking confused. Adriano must like to know that you have that gift. Why, she asked, less cheerful. Remember, Adriano's the friend who was in the taxi with him. Well, he thinks you're interesting. I think he really likes you. He was answering, almost exchanging a look with her about the oddity of the fact. Yes, it was like a night of glory. She laughed, quietly soft, her eyes full of overwhelmed and dreamy moisture. Staring at her, Vicente felt his heart surrender. A sweet, warm, and suffocating foam enveloped him. His eyes were tame, smiling. She was looking. He'd never been so beautiful. With a kind and simple voice, he said, blowing lightly on her face, I love you, girl. He'd hardly said it, however, without transforming the power of his face and even trying to keep it in order to follow the new feeling with freedom. He realized imperceptibly that he didn't love her, that he loved her, maybe precisely before saying, I love you. Enraged with himself, he wanted to take back what he'd said while observing Virginia's face so frightened and translucent. Could that be the first time he'd said it? He wondered with surprise and reproach. He'd said too much. He'd said too much. He was thinking, looking at her with fatigue and pity. Your hair's falling in your face, he said with a disguised rudeness. And that's how he was saying again that it wasn't love. But almost impatient, he was feeling that it would be impossible now to rob her of the I love you. And she was smiling with a joy that was making her unlikable, such a bore. Let's go out, take a stroll, he said, annihilated. <laughs> so, uh... I think now might be a good time to open uh, the conversation and see if any of you guys have any questions about the book um, or about the Spectre, which I'll answer to the best of, of my ability, uh, or comments. I wish it had been. Um, she passed away in 1977. So, yeah, but uh, the tr there have been, uh, well, many people have translated her um, since the time she started writing, and she herself was a translator from English, Spanish, and French into Portuguese. Um, I've talked to many recent translators of Le Spectre about what happens when you start working on her texts and how she kind of visits you and talks to you. So I definitely felt a connectivity, um, even though I didn't get to have kind of an in-the-flesh uh, collaborative experience with her. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, uh, this, this novel has never been uh, translated into English before. 
uh, as a complete text, but I just found out, and I can't believe I didn't know this before, but um, Helene Sixou uh, did translate a section of it. And so um, it was really cool to read her version of the first sentence and think about uh, all of the grappling I did with the first sentence and then what I ended up sending was my sort of, you know, this is going to be my first official pass at the first sentence and then what we ended up with. And then I've since had conversations with other translators about how the first sentence could be different. That's just the first sentence, which, which in Portuguese is um, ela seria fluida durante toda a vida. So it has a rhyme, right? But that's going to be hard to do in English. She'd be flowing all her life doesn't have a rhyme and I'd been thinking about she would be fluid all her life. She would be fluid all her life where the kind of the D sound sort of repeats but it's not exactly a rhyme. And then Sixu actually has that but she did something different where she turned that first sentence she continues it with the next sentence. She put a comma and then continued it. But that's not what Cliss Spector did. So anyway you, you can go on and on with these kinds of conversations. This is what translators love. Yes? In the first passage I detected three minimum instances of alliteration. Yes. And I was wondering, is this something you're conscious of? If you are conscious of it, you consciously resist the temptation to alliterate or avoid, or if it's an original writing, you seem to repeat it. Like what I, what I think of is this kind of dizzying, leaping light. But it didn't appear in the other passage, just in the first one. Right. But I thought, well, maybe that suggests that the translation of those things. No, I would say that uh, her writing is very lyrical, very poetic, and um, Many people consider her a kind of consider her a kind of poet. I mean, she's a prose writer, but um, uh, and she's definitely plays with syntax in Portuguese in a way that poets do. So when you translate, you you want to not only be loyal to things like alliteration, or sometimes alliteration can be like a compensating for something else you can't bring into the English. And you're like, oh, but I have this opportunity to alliterate, and it's not exactly the same thing as, for example, a rhyme or uh, some other kind of use of language, but it, it kind of uh, appears. So you kind of have to weigh each instance. But I think you would not want to force an alliteration or create it if it weren't there or if something very similar to that play of language, sonic play of language, were not there. Um, yes. Oh, you have to be on alliteration watch the whole time. <laughs> the whole novel. It can't, it can't, it can't cease at any moment. But I, I, the first, her first paragraph is more formal, more poetic, um, more dense. It's really setting up the, this kind of nucleus, this secret, this magic. It's almost like an incantation or a, or, right, a spell. Um, so, uh, I could, hi, I could, um, if you want, I could read well, I already read that first paragraph, so I don't want to do it again because you guys already heard that. But um, I'm looking here to see if I can find a, an example of the alliteration that we would have used. Um, we're definitely not, you know, translators are not going to uh, invent things that aren't there. But for, like, for example, on the second page, 
there's a paragraph that starts in Portuguese. Ele falara tão grave, ele falara tão belo, o rio rolava, o rio rolava. So there's, you have that repetition and that the, the river is rolling, right? And so, j just as an example, let's pull up that same sentence in the English. He had spoken so seriously, he had spoken so beautifully, the river was rolling, the river was rolling. So you, you want to get a feeling, you know, and, and different, different, there are different schools of translation. Some translators might say, well, I want it to be as exactly technically literal as possible. Other people say, well, it has to really ca capture the spirit and the artistry, and that's going to be a little more qualitative and maybe even subjective at times. Some, I've spoken to some people um, who are writers of fiction or poetry and get to work with their translators, and some of them, a mentor of mine actually, who's a Brazilian poet and translator, uh, he has this book of sonnets that I'm trying to work on and he, he wrote me an email and he said that's a nice try but really I'd like you to just go for it and make it a poem which which I felt was permission to then just you know go all kinds of crazy and kind of almost recreate the work um, and there are translators and writers who, who believe that and some people also believe that a translation can be more faithful to the original text than the original text was if it if it's executed in, a, in an extremely felicitous way like um, I've, I've researched and written a lot about Elizabeth Bishop uh, who translated Clarice Lispector and Bishop also translated Octavio Paz they knew each other and they actually translated each other well she translated one of his poems about the artist Joseph Cornell and when she did it she wrote past this letter and she was very sheepish about it she said oh I think maybe you know the penultimate stanza could be moved in terms of the order of the poem and it would have kind of a better structure and he he wrote her back and he said dear Elizabeth you've solved it this is perfect I'm gonna change it in the original you know you've, you've improved my poem so um, the answer is it depends but I would say in the in the case of this book um, Absolutely, the lyricism and the poetry and the sound is something that was very important to, to, cap to try to capture in English as best as possible. Yes, Tom. Yes. No. I wanted every adjective. It is kind of a more Baroque, almost type book, you know, novel compared to uh, other other works of hers. Um, and, uh, but no, because I think that excess, all, you know, you could describe it that way, is there for a reason. And there's a there's a scholar who's writing about the chandelier in this uh, book about a bunch of uh, novels from the second half of the 20th century. And she's she's based at U Chicago, and she's comparing the novel, the way the novelists write about nature and, and the, the style of the prose. And so one of the things I understand that she's talking about for the, with the chandelier is the, the forest is so important and that nature, the countryside where Virginia grows up, it, it really dominates the novel in, in terms of its actual prose. It's almost this dense, impenetrable foliage of prose. And so, um, but I do think that there is space for for example, a translation of Olustri into Portuguese or English or some other language that really whittles it down. I, that, I think, would be really cool. Like if someone wanted to turn the chandelier into haiku or um, something else like, a, I don't know, a silent film. I mean, how would you do that? I have no idea, but it would be 
I think, an interesting experiment. Um, and speaking to, I did get to speak to some people who knew Lispector and translated her. Um, and uh, one of them was telling me that Lispector had a very generous uh, sense of what translation was and really uh, invited and liked to have her, her work translated in all kinds of ways in other mediums. Um, and then I learned that uh, her first novel was staged as a play in 1965 in Rio when Lispector was still alive. And apparently she had played a role in the play as an actor. I don't know what yet. I have to keep researching that. But um, I thought that was very interesting as well. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I first read Lispector, the first book of hers I read is The Hour of the Star, which is her final novel, which was published in 77, right before she died. Um, and it's been translated a couple times into English. Um, I read it in 2001 when I was living in Chile, where I was born. I was teaching ESL at this international school, and the headmasters were Dickensian. They were awful. And I had one friend, um, and she was um, the teacher that I was ESL helper for. So she was teaching her international baccalaureate students the hour of the star. Um, and I was blown away by this book. It was so crazy. And if, for those of you who haven't, haven't had a chance to read it, I encourage you to do so. It's also very slim. It's very compact. And I believe very um, connected to the chandelier. The two main characters, Virginia and Maccabea and the hour of the star, there are similarities in their life stories that are uh, not an accident. Um, and so uh, reading that novel at that time, living in Chile, was like a very powerful personal experience for me. And then I started grad school at UCLA in, in uh, the fall of 2001 and started learning Portuguese and uh, fell into this project of researching Elizabeth Bishop, who had translated Lispector. And then I went to Brazil for the first time and fell in love with that and started uh, uh, researching in Lispector's archives. So we've been working on her work for a very, very, very long time. Um, and when, when the opportunity to work on a translation came up, I was thrilled. Um, uh, and it felt that, if nothing else, because I'd been reading her work and studying it for so long, that I, that I would be up for the challenge as best I could. Um, and it's been really fun to join a um, kind of, I guess, posse of translators. Um, and, and there's a, a couple different generations of translators, I would say. Like, the New Directions has um, uh, been publishing these new translations. Um, and there are translations that came before from other publishers. Um, and many of those translators are, are still alive. Um, I was able to go to Oxford in November to this uh, conference all about Lispector. And so there were scholars and translators and writers from all, all, over, all over the world there. I got to meet the woman who's translated two of Lispector's novels into Chinese. And she gave a really interesting talk about that. Um, and, cause, and it's such a different language. You know, I, I studied Chinese for a couple of years um, in high school, but didn't really learn it. So I, can't, I don't know it. Uh, but I know enough to know it's it, the, the sound, the lyricism. It's a completely different, um, you know, like if you're a composer, it's a completely different scale and et cetera, toolkit. Um, so it's, that's been really, really a lot of fun. Um, and uh, 
I, last year, uh, when I was working on the translation, truly became sort of mad and um, ended up doing this, um, <laughs> I ended up doing this one-woman show for the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which is every June, it's happening right now again, um, and it was called I Want to Be Robert De Niro, and it was about a woman named Madalena, who was translating Olushtri, the chandelier, into English, who got into a fight with the main character, uh, with, the, with the novelist, rather, with Lispector, because she felt that Lispector was too tough with her main character, that Virginia's life was too tragic, it was too awful, we need to change the story, and Lispector was having none of it, and it was so, it's been so interesting to look back on that, you know, uh, and, and think about what, what was even happening, and then to find out that she uh, participated in the staging of her first novel as a play in Rio was like s thrilling for me to, uh, to find that out much later, so, yeah. It's Yeah, I mean, this is, well, there, you can see more of her face, but if, the, if there is a copy also of, um, they must have a copy in the store of the complete stories, uh, yes, but what so you're... With her, she, in the transmutation into this character, she seems very unabashed the response Yes. I mean, I think that um, definitely her, her fi I, there's so many ways to answer this question. One way to answer it is to talk about Lispector's uh, presence on Twitter. So, so her, her face, her likeness, because she is so striking, and she, there's kind of this mysteriousness and this glamour. People have written about that. Other people have written about how that's annoying and how irritating that, you know, people are comparing her to actresses. She was a serious writer. If she were a man, no one would do that. Um, her, her, her words and her likeness and the likeness of uh, two particular Brazilian actresses who've played her are all over Twitter. And um, there's one in particular, her name is Rita Elmore, who did a one-woman show in 98 when she was like 20, where she plays Lispector. And she looks so much like her, but there have been tweets, like for example, LitHub tweeted an excerpt of this novel, which was wonderful, right? Like, hey, here's, a, here's an excerpt from the chandelier, it's so great, read it. With a photograph of Rita Elmore, not of Clarice Lispector, right? And, and Rita Elmore, her, so that one woman show she did in 1998 was like her debut into the world of acting in Brazil. She's done a bunch of soap operas and TV and uh, film since and theater too, but she can't shake Lispector. So she, then she wrote a new one woman show that she started performing like two years ago about her relationship with Lispector and how um, she just, it's just, now she's like this double or this doppel, doppelganger for Lispector and that's because of the way she looks. Um, 
so there's, there are many ways to answer this question, and I think specifically the chandelier in terms of Virginia, the body is very important throughout the book. Her, her awakening about her body, her awareness, its power, how she feels about it, what, it, what is she feeling, her sensations, her connectivity um, with uh, men or other creatures, with the air, with, you know, uh, dreams. Um, and so I think that that's also very interesting because, you know, you think 1943 and 44 is a pretty conservative time. I mean, you're not, of course, well, I could go in a different direction, but you know, it's even even the things Virginia herself is experiencing. She goes to see the doctor. She has a hat. She's putting the pins away. There's a formality, right? And yet, in in that prose, you're also getting a lot of intimate details, um, and from a from a female perspective, that. Um, I'm not a historian of novels about women in the 40s, but I would be interested to know if there are how many other such novels that aren't sort of straightforwardly erotica, for example, exist that would do those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, and the other thing I would encourage you guys all to read, and I brought it to show you today, um, it's sort of apropos, is this amazing essay that Katrina Dodson, who translated all of the Spectre stories into English, wrote it's in, that just came out in The Believer. And it's um, the title, it's the first essay here. Um, the title is, Understanding is the Proof of Error, Will the Real Clarice Lispector Please Stand Up? A translator grasps for the words to convey a Brazilian icon. So Lispector's now, you know, she's becoming this kind of, or be, has already become this kind of world literature superstar. Um, who, who's all over social media as well as has body doubles <laughs> who can't shake her. It's, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting. Um, and here's a, one last detail to sort of circuitously answer your question. The scholar and translator of the Spectre, who I've talked to a lot, who, who knew her quite well, described to me her living room. Um, so you'd go into her living room, and she she worked also as a journalist um, and interviewed a lot of people, you know, to like to pay her bills. She became a single mom. She left her diplomat husband. Eventually, she kind of tired of the diplomat wife's life and moved with her two boys back to Brazil and had to, you know, pay her own way. So she had various newspaper columns and was doing all kinds of writing for hire. Anyway, you would, apparently would go into her living room, and it was it was this apartment in, in Copacabana in Rio. And it was filled with photographs and paintings of the specter. Like, you know, just from, from the floor to the ceiling, from the way she described it. And to me, that feels almost like a proto-Instagram um, feed, you know, like filled with these, like, selfies and portraits. And so I think she was always playing with image and the visual. And, in the, and it, that's another way that she's such um, a writer of our current moment, which to me is so fascinating. Um, uh, so I leave you with that image of her living room, which I wish I could have been in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I did not have trouble with punctuation because this novel doesn't have anything too um, wacky or confusing. Um, definitely, you know, we, we wanted to be uh, loyal to the original text, but also remember that there's other New Directions books that have 
come out recently before this one. So this, this translation is part of kind of a, a constellation. So um, I did, for example, even I brought it with me today. Um, refer back to Alison Entrickin's wonderful translation of Near to the Wild Heart, uh, which I've just listened to as an audiobook. It's so cool to hear it. Um, to see, you know, because this is the, for her, the Spectre's first novel, which she published just a couple years before The Chandelier, to see, you know, what did Alison do with punctuation? I didn't have that specific, but you know, if I'd had that question, or more, more specifically, like a particular word. Like, oh, I'm translating word X as this in The Chandelier, but I bet that word is in Near to the Wild Heart. How did Alison do it? And did we do it the same way? If we did, that's great. If we didn't, do I need to change something? You know, is this, uh, because, and, and that can even happen within a novel where uh, do you have to translate word X in Portuguese the same way every time into English or not? You know, um, so, uh, but her later books and stories have a, have a punchiness and have a, um, I don't know if I want to use the word avant-garde exactly, but you know, it, it, the chandelier didn't have that uh, challenge. Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. Um, and it's so cool that you bring that up because when I was listening to Near to the Wild Heart as an audiobook, I realized that there are these amazing sections in this novel that are like uh, monologues that, you know, like an actor could take on and do. And you don't quite have that in The Chandelier. And, and why didn't she do it? You know? Um, so, but, but that, that would be an interesting experimental kind of translation, right? Like someone could say, I'm going to do a sequence of monologues that are uh, Virginia speaking from the chandelier and let's see what happens. And I think that, I think from all the people I've talked to and the things that I've read that Claire you see would give her blessing if someone wanted to do that. So if any of you want to, you should. I think you'll get another, but let's go with someone over here who hasn't had a chance first. Yeah. Right. Um, when there's not something that's so straightforward, I, I would say in the case of Lispector, has it come up in another book? And can I get a clue from that? Or um, what have other translators who've had to deal with similar words done? Or, and, or, and like, what do my native uh, Brazilian Portuguese speaker friends have to say about that? Um, so there, there's, you definitely have to go and ask people or books questions. Um, and sometimes you have to sort of go with something that's good enough, but it's not going to quite be um, what you wanted it to be. And then occasionally you can have, that didn't really happen here, but you can ask yourself, do we even want to translate this into English? Maybe we keep it in the original. So one of the um, novels of the, new, of the New Directions translations, it kept the title from Portuguese, Agua Viva. Didn't, you know, so that's also a choice depending on um, the moment um, or the context. Uh, 
So I think that um, I'm going to answer it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I would say first that um, one of the other Lispector translators um, uh, has talked to me about her sensation of like how Lispector changes from the beginning of her career toward the end and she even ventured to say there are some translators who can do like later Lispector but they couldn't do earlier Lispector or vice versa right and because like the later Lispector I mean there's always a sense of humor but the later Lispector has a punchiness and a humor and a, um, a brashness almost to it that might you know you, you, maybe you can't get that tone one of my favorite writers is Virginia Woolf um, and so, uh, and I remember uh, many years ago now, I was a teaching assistant at UCLA when I was a grad student there, and I was teaching Orlando. I don't know if you guys have read that novel by Virginia Woolf. It's so great. And it's her, like, least Wolfian novel. And I thought my students were going to love it. Like, Orlando, it's so cool. And there's that film, you know, with Tilda Swinton and Billy Zane. And they, would, like, the sentences made them insane because they're so long and they're so demanding. And for me, I was like, what are you talking about? And then I, re I realized, like, you had to track this sort of labyrinth. And so um, I think f for me in English, because I love that writer, and, and I also grew up speaking Spanish, so I have that romance, romance language background where sentences can be super long and you have a clause and a clause and a clause and a clause and it just keeps going. Um, uh, and I guess just my connection to Lispector, th th those are part parts of my toolkit. Um, when I was translating, I really wanted to focus more on the music and what you're describing than fussing so much initially on like the verb tense or um, things like that that I felt you can obviously fix. Like that's what revision and editing is for, right? And you're going to have to go over the text many, many, many times. But that kind of hypnotic, almost trance-like choreography, you know, if you break the spell, you break the spell. So um, the, work, the, work, the days of work were very intense and very focused um, and sort of like very draining um, and in a way very physical. Um, but uh, I think because, because the, your whole body is tuned in and because she's writing so much about the body and because, um, as you say, she's kind of moving this way and then she goes that way and then maybe like that. So it's, it's not, you know, subject, verb, object. Um, yes. Oh, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. 
Yes. Oh, yes. Right. Um, that's a great question. Um, and so personal, I love it. Um, so I, when the first time I went to Brazil, I uh, fell in love with, with the specific place where I was, which was Rio, which I know is one city in a very big country that has many different kinds of cities and subcultures and so on. But um, I felt so connected and so kind of in a way at home uh, because I was born in Chile to Chilean parents who moved to the US when I was a baby. They were supposed to move back to South America, but they never did. So I grew up passing totally as a gringa, but I wasn't, and my parents have accents, like my girlfriend's moms would call to arrange a play date, my mom would answer the phone, they thought my mom was the maid, because she has an accent, you know, and the accent is still there, so many years later, you know, my, my parents speak accented English, that's the way it is, and I was, you know, I had a green card, I was an, an illegal alien, at least we were not, you know, like all these families now facing that, yeah, it's very hard, so, so that kind of hybridity and that insider-outsider status, do you pass, do you not, you know, um, appropriateness, the Catholicism. I mean, Clarice's family was Jewish, but, you know, and Brazil has other religions as well and has a kind of synchronicity and the candomblé and all of this, but, but Catholicism is very powerful in Brazil. And, uh, you know, Chile is also a Catholic country. So that, that thing of being, you know, appropriate and having your legs crossed, wearing a nice dress, having your hair combed, all of these things are, are things that are, I know on a cellular, le cellular level from growing up. Um, when I was speaking this morning to, uh, to the people at the Brazilian Bilingual Book Club in London, and there were many Brazilians in that group, uh, it was wonderful to learn about so many things that I, I didn't necessarily know. Like even, for example, that Brejo um, Alto uh, and Grande Quieta in Olustre, the localities, there are apparently 43 brejos in the northeast of Brazil. And these are these kind of microclimates that are sort of forest-like, but cold and very lush. And the, the, the people who were from those areas or fa had family from those areas were going on and on about these microclimates and the nature and the poet, you know, poeticizing. And, and I, I've never been there. I don't know that. So there are certain things that you have to um, trust that the text will will we'll give it to you. Um, and, and there are a lot of translators who translate things that they don't know, you know, like can a man translate a book written by a woman? Or can, you know, um, someone like Paulo Henrique Espirito, who's my mentor in Brazil, um, who translates Faulkner into Portuguese, like he's never been to where Faulkner, you know, but, but he's a damn good translator. So um, uh, I would never want to say that I don't think people can translate things that they are not personally connected to because I think literature is freedom and translation is also a way for us to explore and grow and experience things that we don't know. Um, I would also say that for me, I do feel, wh while not being a Brazilian and not having the exact experience Clarice did, I do feel a lot of personal connection, yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Yes. So, um, Benjamin Moser is 
the series editor of the translations that New Directions has been publishing. Um, so it's not any co-translator that I've been listed with. He also uh, wrote a biography of the Spectre that came out in 2009 with Oxford um, and has now been translated into Portuguese and many other languages. Um, so he, he's uh, a force. He's, he's uh, uh, very dedicated to the Spectre, knows her work extremely well, um, and uh, is at the helm of this, this new, these new translations. Um, so, you know, that's going to be a, um, an intense relationship. At the same time, I can say that I met Ben a million years ago when he was researching his biography of the Spectre and I was working on my dissertation on Elizabeth Bishop. And we met in Rio at the house of a friend in common, as it turned out, and then I gave him uh, a chapter for my dissertation on Bishop and the Spectre and we swapped stories. So. Um, the good news is that I've kind of, in a way, known him, you know, from early days, and we've sort of come up, um, I wouldn't say together, because I haven't been doing all the things that he's been doing, uh, and vice versa, but, um, you know, there's, there's history there. Um, and so I think what's interesting about the Lispector case is it's, it's translatable to other cases where a writer becomes very kind of hot, a hot property, kind of like, a, like I said before, a world literature superstar. The stakes go up, you know? Who's in charge? Who's the expert? Who has the keys to the kingdom? Um, and, uh, you know, Ben has really promoted Lispector in a new way. Um, uh, and more and more people are reading her work because of everything that he's done. Um, and uh, I think that that's really an excellent thing. So uh, overall for me to participate, to be part of this kind of new constellation of translators and also join all the translators who's ever, who have ever worked on Le Spectre um, has been a really exciting um, experience. Um, sometimes you don't agree. You know, and you have to, through the process of revision and whatever, you have to come to, um, what did you say? Blows. Bl well, I wasn't going to say blows. I was going to say, like, compromise or, you know, someone gets the final word or whatever. But um, when, when Ben first asked me to do the translation, I, um, at first, panicked. And I said, oh, no, this book has not been translated into English before. Like, that's a lot of pressure. But then I thought, no problem. It will be translated by other people. Right? Like, let this be the first of many. And um, with, uh, for example, The Odyssey, um, uh, uh, Emily Wilson's new translation is so exciting, and nobody is saying, let's throw away all the other translations. We're comparing them, and we want to know what she is doing differently. And, you know, it's so exciting to have her uh, as kind of a new translator of, translator of that great text. So I would hope that um, there will be many, many more translators to come of Le Spectre into English and into many other languages. I think maybe we should wrap, what time is it? Does anybody know actually? Is it 8.40? Are we good? Should we wrap it up or? One or two? Okay, so one or two. So we'll go with you and then, no, yeah. That's my third question. Yes. Yeah. Because Jeff, what I was going to ask yeah. was, uh, back to that first passage particularly, uh, the imagery of the fish and light and stuff, like I sort of connected with uh, the lighthouse. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One little passage to where she talks about this fish, they're sort of like isolated, you know, 
Right. Looking at them in the reflections and comparing them to the position of those things. Yes. And so I was thinking, okay, Virginia, was that a, a tribute? We talked about this about this, this morning. Like uh, someone asked me if I thought that Lispector named Virginia after Virginia Woolf. Um, I've definitely been thinking a lot about that. Um, I recommend that you guys, if you're curious, look up Lispector's only filmed interview that we have. It's about 20 minutes long. She gave it um, very uh, right before she died, a few months before she died. It's so amazing. She she says in the interview that she's having a bad day and she's not like very fun that day and has a good sense of humor. And usually, you know, she's not like that. But she, nonetheless, she's very playful and doesn't want to be pinned down. The 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 interviewer con keeps asking her. Who are your influences? Name your in can you name your influence? He's this very formal. I believe the interview took place in Sao Paulo. He's this very formal kind of you know like um, cultural critic uh, uh, interviewer type guy, and she doesn't want to tell him. She says, "Well, I, you know, I'm going to forget somebody, and they're going to get their feelings hurt, so I just don't want to say anything." Um, and he tries a couple more times, and then he he tries like different versions of that question, like, you know, as a professional writer, how has your experience been? But da 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 da. And then she she cuts him off. She's like, "I'm not a professional writer. I'm an amateur. That's how I maintain my freedom." And I love that because she just does not want to be placed in any particular spot or category. She is very fluid and flowing. And so I think with the Virginia Woolf question, um, if we were to ask her, she would not answer in any direct way. She, she, um, there is a letter that she wrote, um, I think to one of her sisters, where um, she talks about Virginia Woolf, because people compared her writing to Woolf's. She didn't like being compared to anybody. Um, and she said, you know, Virginia Woolf, no, 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 no. And by the way, the, um, our, our duty is to go on to the bitter end. So, so sort of cri criticizing in a way Woolf for, you know, uh, killing herself by drowning herself. For me, the fact that the main character is Virginia, she sees, uh, she and her brother Daniel think they see a man drowning in the very first, you know, paragraphs of the book, I don't think that's a mistake. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's explicitly only Virginia Woolf, because of course the name Virginia is, you know, the virgin, virginal. And so you have this young woman, and she goes through then all of these experiences that fits very well with everything that's happening in the novel in terms of her, her body and her being and her spirit. Thank you so much, everybody. I'll hang around if you have any other questions. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.